0: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
1: Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack. And save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joe's, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now, you're multitasking, but what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers
0: You know, a a way to attack philosophical-wise. I guess that's the way I'm trying to say it here. Philosophical-wise, as you
2: say, (laughs) or
0: otherwise.
1: (laughs) That's a new addition. That's a new addition. I I cut you some slack in real time, but I had to circle back around. That's another entry in the Chris Sims English lexicon, philosophical-wise. Simsism. We're gonna need a bigger book. Seems like every day, Chris kisses. A new edition, a new twist, a new amalgamation of words. Good morning, Chris Sims. Hello, Peter King. I'm Mike Florio. It's Pro Football Talk Live. Philosophical wise, I'm not sure what we're gonna get into today. We're just gonna get into it, Peter. First time we've had you on since the draft. How are you doing? Hello, Uncle Leo.
2: How are you? Hello. Yeah.
1: Let's talk about (laughs) Cousin Jeffrey for the next two hours or or not. (laughs) Um, So, uh, Peter, uh, give me your just big picture, broad stroke, 20 second or less assessment of what we saw last Thursday, Friday and Saturday. We'll be talking about a lot of details coming up, but just you're right out of the gate since we haven't had you on since any of it happened.
2: Best thing that's happened to Roger Goodell since uh, getting the labor situation solved in 2011 on the eve of training camp, Uh, the best thing to humanize an oftentimes way over-the-top glitzy, greedy league and on the field, two things just stood out. Number one, Aaron Rodgers got slapped in the face, and number two, I think the smartest teams had no trouble with how this new draft had to work. And I can tell you, Mike, many of them are already going to implement a lot of the things they've been using in the last six weeks. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, that's kind of been
1: percolating and bubbling around, Chris. You had some comments about that recently, this idea that now that the football world has realized people can actually function away from the facility, in the future we may see an emphasis on Letting people work away from the facility.
0: Well, I, I do think that in the, in the culture of the NFL, where it's the last man standing award, we're going to stay in the office. When I used to work in New England, guys, I mean, there would be coaches and, and people in, in you know the front office where you'd walk by their office around nine, nine thirty at night and they weren't doing anything. They were just scared to leave because Bill Belichick hadn't left yet. So they were going to sit there and watch TV or, you know, maybe look at the computer and clean a few things up. But There, there was no more work to be done. And I think this has set a really good example to say, or for, for a lot of coaches to show that the culture can be changed here. Uh, with with the current status of technology and how easy it is to do uh, all this work at home, you know, get, a, get set up there and have everything you need at, your availability uh I do think it's opened some eyes in the NFL to say well why are we grinding and staying away from our family 20 hours a day and you know going home falling asleep for four or five hours and doing it all again when you know I think they can find some balance there and I think there are a bunch of coaches who have realized that through this process
1: it's easier said than done though because yes yeah. because There's still going to be that mindset that you need to be there. You need to get there before the boss. You need to stay there until after the boss leaves. The boss is the one who sets the tone, Peter. And I remember Tony Dungy telling this story about his time as a head coach. He was the boss and he set the tone. And he left. And when the boss leaves, that makes it easier for everyone else to leave. So if these changes are going to be made, they have to come, Peter, from the people who are in charge, right?
2: No question about it. You know, I, I spent a half hour yesterday uh, with John Lynch uh, taping a segment for our podcast, for my podcast, which is, which is up right now at NBCSports.com, shameless plug. But the one thing that he said is they are going to make some changes. They're going to implement some changes. He wouldn't tell me what they are, but I think it has to do with, you know, uh, happy wife, happy life a lot of that kind of stuff. If you can do a lot of this scouting and film work from home, especially pre-draft, go home, do it, get your work done. We're going to expect the same quality of report, but if you want to do it at 10.30 at night after everybody goes to bed, go ahead and do it. And I think that is one of the big things. Mike, I've already had one general manager tell me that, okay, what they do, what what many NFL teams do is, They will have after the college football season, let's say the second week of December, every scout will come into the facility and spend like eight days and they will go over every position. They'll preliminarily set their scouting board. And they do that once then, and then they do it like in February, right before they go to the scouting combine. And this GM said, right now, I'm going to take all my scouts who've already been on the road for three or four months. I'm going to take them, and we're going to do it from home next year. So, to me, I think, and doing it on these uh, video conferences, it makes a lot of sense, especially when you can take the video that they're going to be looking at. Let's say of Zach Bond at 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 Wisconsin, polarizing linebacker pro, uh, prospect. They can take 20 guys on a chat, and they can put the film right on the screen so that they all can watch. The same thing at the same time. I think that's one of the things a lot of teams are going to do. You know, the circumstances have forced all teams to be
1: flexible and try something new. And now that they've tried something new, they're realizing, hey, we kind of like this. Well, Aaron Rodgers may not like the product of the Packers draft. That was Peter's first big takeaway, the slap in the face that Aaron Rodgers absorbed And I mention that because yesterday, Bob McGinn, who covered the Packers for 38 years and has more recently been writing for The Athletic, he had this quote that just slapped me in the face when I read it regarding the decision to draft Jordan Love in Green Bay in round one, trading up to get him and then otherwise loading up the running game after that. Public niceties aside, McGinn writes, my sense is Matt LaFleur, the coach of the Packers, simply has had enough of Aaron Rodgers' act and wanted to change the narrative. With a first-round talent on the roster in Jordan Love, the Packers would gain leverage with their imperial quarterback and his passive-aggressive style. If the Packers do indeed want to become a running team next season, they surely wouldn't want Rodgers rocking the boat and becoming even more difficult to coach, I mean, there's a lot in there that I, you know, we could probably spend a segment on each sentence in that paragraph, Peter. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, McGinn covered the team for 38 years and McGinn still knows that team better than any other team. I mean, there's stuff there that surprised me because I thought Aaron Rodgers was happy last year. I thought the passive aggressive stuff ended when Mike McCarthy got fired. He went on and on after they lost to the 49ers in the NFC Championship game about how he loves football again with all these players who have come in and helped with the leadership and the players are empowered under Matt LaFleur. What gives, Peter?
2: Mike, the really interesting thing out of that, and obviously I have more respect for Bob McGinn than any beat writer in the country. He's unbelievably good. But the biggest deal... In, in all of what he said and now the stuff that's come bubbling beneath the surface is that, you know, last year, uh, basically, Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers had sort of, I don't even want to call it a truce because I don't think it came from any place of anger or defiance or anything like that. But Aaron Rodgers was going to get to change plays and change a lot of plays. And I will go back in time right now, Mike, and everybody says with Drew Bledsoe and Tom Brady that the real story behind that was that, well, you know, Bledsoe got hurt because he was hit and plowed into the sideline uh by Mo Lewis of the Jets and had a life threatening had life-threatening internal injuries. And What we now know about that is Bill Belichick was already sick, and so was Charlie Weiss at the time, the offensive coordinator. I'm not saying sick of how often Drew Bledsoe changed plays at the line of scrimmage, but I think Belichick basically felt at the time that, hey, look, we work all week on doing this stuff, and now you're changing all these plays. Why are we doing that? And and again, I want to find out, I want to know how many plays last year Did Aaron Rodgers actually change uh, from Matt LaFleur's original call? And he's got a lot of freedom, but did that freedom sort of backfire on him now? We're going to find that out pretty soon. But that freedom that Aaron Rodgers had, I now really wonder whether he took that freedom too far.
0: Well, maybe he did did take it too far, but... What's going to stop them now? I mean, they better be careful, okay? Because they're just, you know, to a degree here, I, you know, they've empowered him here for the next two years too because he could just be like, hey, screw all of you. Looks like you want to replace me. Oh, you wanted to run that 96-power king running play? Ah, uh, forget it. I like to throw a slant over here to Vontae Adams. So – You know, I think that's the interesting aspect of all this, you know, and and I don't really know what Green Bay's thought was. I mean, obviously they're planning for the future. You know, do I think Matt LaFleur, you know, was a little taken aback last year by the fact that, you know, he made some comments during the season. I was going back looking at a few things last night where he talked about, like, he felt weird in the fourth quarter because he wasn't doing anything because he basically just went, okay, Rodgers, you take over. I don't think Matt LaFleur is the type of person that's like, man, I can't believe you know, Rodgers took away my power in the fourth quarter. I'm going to take it back. I don't think he's that type of guy. I've been around him before. I do think he was genuine in his uh, you know, love affair that Rodgers did bring so much to the offense last year. So I'm not so sure I can get behind all the things in that report. And, you know, I, I, you know, Don McGann, I know, is an unbelievable writer and he's awesome. And I'm not trying to, you know, say he's lying or anything like that. But I just don't know what that thought process is right now. And I guess my big thing is Green Bay better be very careful uh, about how they approach this or they're going to really lose control of this guy and he'll do whatever the hell he wants.
1: Well, Don McGinn, the former White House counsel, may indeed be a great writer. Bob McGinn also is, though, Chris, <laughs> just to make sure. We're Damn, I'm a on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, here's the thing. And, Peter, Peter, you hit the nail on the head. Because last year it was that column from Mike Silver, your former colleague at Sports Illustrated now at uh, NFL Media, who, who tapped into that The audible thing, as Matt LaFleur called it, the tension that existed between the LaFleur offense and Aaron Rodgers wanting to have the freedom at the line of scrimmage, not have his hands tied by this plan to have two plays called in the huddle, and then the quarterback, based upon a predetermined set of factors, would determine at the line of scrimmage which one to use. He doesn't even have discretion. He has to make a decision based on what he sees, not what he thinks is going to work. That ultimately swung in Aaron Rodgers' favor, and he ended up with the full freedom to change the play whenever he wanted. I spoke to Matt LaFleur after they beat the, pa- uh, the, the Bears in December, and he said, I have full trust in Aaron Rodgers. There was a, a, a touchdown early in the game on a fourth-and-four play from the Chicago 29 where Rodgers changed the play, and LaFleur was like, what the hell is he doing? And he scored, so it's like, that's fine. But, Peter, I, I still think that at some level – it does create tension within the coach. Like, there's a system that I use. There's a, a an attack that I have honed that helped me get this job. At some point, I'd kind of like to use it. And I don't know how actively they try to rein Aaron Rodgers in or, Chris, like you say, whether it will even work because I don't think it will work. I think the next year or two is going to be very bumpy and very rocky in Green Bay until they get to the point where the cap hit won't be devastating to move on from Aaron Rodgers. But but Peter, um I, I I really, you know, I thought what was there last summer had been resolved, but reading what Bob McGinn wrote and hearing your reaction to it, it really makes me think it hasn't been resolved. It was just kind of tucked under the covers to be dealt with another day.
2: We'll see. Mike, you know, uh Chris is right. It's gonna be a very interesting time. Plus, I mean what's what is unfortunate, in my opinion, for the Packers is that they're not going to be able to get together much this offseason. Who knows? Aaron Rodgers might not shake Jordan Love's hand until August 20th, you know, and, and, and they might not get together. So we don't know exactly what is going to happen and how things are going to change. Two points, though, Mike. Didn't you find it very interesting? And I talked to Brian Gutekunst on Sunday. But didn't you find it very interesting that Brian Gutekunst went out of his way uh, at his uh, post-draft remarks to basically say, we want to run the ball. We want to be, you know, we're going to, it sounded very much like he was saying, you know, instead of being 60-40 pass, we're going to be 50-50 now or, or, or something like that. Or that's what we want to do. That's the first thing. And that's why drafting A.J. Dillon, which to me, I don't know. you got two running backs that are pretty good right now. You desperately need a wide receiver complement to Devontae Adams. That's I keep coming back to that. I'll come back to it until the Green Bay Packers play a football game and blow somebody out with, uh, you know, Valdez Scantling and Equinemius St. Brown and all that. And And the Packers say those guys are going to be good players. Okay, let's see. But my biggest issue now is six years in a row, six years, the Green Bay Packers have not drafted a wide receiver in the first three rounds and they have not spent significant money on a wide receiver in free agency. If you're Aaron Rodgers, what are you thinking right now?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm with you. I don't understand what Green Bay's thinking. I mean, Hey, You're talking about the wide receivers, Peter King, and I'm with you. That's confusing. I mean, one, you know, I think you could argue Aaron Rodgers has been like the greatest one-man band in football the last eight or nine years, maybe until the last few years with Russell Wilson, but it's been a lot of underwhelming receivers and offensive weapons, and man, is there a lot of pressure on Aaron Rodgers on a week-to-week basis. That was the thing that's always bothered me. It bothered me about when Mike Holmgren was there. You know, it bothered me again last year. There was moments where you just go, man, can, can we just find somebody that can maybe catch a slant and run for 70 yards? Does it always have to be Rodgers dissecting a team down the field and having to make throws that nobody else can make, like we saw in the Seattle Seahawks playoff game or many other examples? So, you know, and, and the other thing I'll say, too, here is, you know, with the offense thing, I, I just, I I just don't know, you know, again, what I want to say is Matt LaFleur, who I have respect for, okay, and I still think probably got this job a little early or before he really deserved it, for lack of a better way to say it. I mean, his year as an offensive coordinator with the Tennessee Titans, they were what, 27th or 29th in football on offense? And when you apply for the Green Bay Packer job, you have to know what you're applying for. So I would think Green Bay knew and Matt LaFleur would know what they're going to get when you're going there. Okay, yeah, we're going to get the coach, one of the greatest quarterbacks we've ever seen, but also a quarterback that we know, yes, changes, changes, has always had free reign throughout his career. He wasn't just going to give that up. And I think Matt LaFleur would have known that, and it was so successful in so many moments last year. And I still think with Rodgers under the center in big moments – Green Bay can pound the table and say, we want to run the ball all we want. When it comes down to third and two in a big moment of the game, Aaron Rodgers is going to go, hey, I like my O-line, I like Aaron Jones, but I trust my right arm and Devontae Adams more. So I'm going to throw the ball here. And I don't think that's going to change until they get rid of Rodgers. and And that's where it's going to get very interesting here in the next year or two.
1: For me, and then we have to take a break. I think it comes down to the old cliche, if you can't beat them, join them. And when we saw what happened to the Packers when they went to San Francisco in January and got blown off the field, they got blown off the field not by a passing game. They got blown off the field by a running game. And I like think in the aftermath of that, that expertly designed Kyle Shanahan attack where Mike LaFleur is an assistant coach. He's a passing game coordinator who had nothing to coordinate that game because they ran the ball, ran the ball, ran the ball down the throats of the Green Bay Packers. Instead of beefing up the run defense, instead of beefing up the passing game, Mike LaFleur wants his own running game that he can now trot out and he can be the genius like Kyle Shanahan who designs these runs and wears a defense down and beats a team that way. And if it means Aaron Rodgers gets thrown overboard at some point in the next couple of years – so be it. All right, let's take a break. A lot of Eagles fans think Carson Wentz is getting thrown overboard in Philadelphia. That's not going to happen, but I did talk to GM Howie Roseman, the guy who made quarterback Jalen Hurts a second round pick in this year's draft. You'll hear from Roseman next on why they made the pick of Jalen Hurts in round two. More PFT Live right after this.
0: When's Don McGann coming on the show? <laughs> <laughs>
1: One of the big surprises of the draft, Jalen Hurts taken in round 2 by the Philadelphia Eagles. I caught up with GM Howie Roseman yesterday and asked him about taking Hurts with a franchise quarterback in Carson Wentz on the roster. Here's what Roseman had to say. We love Carson Wentz and we've shown it with our actions. We showed it when we traded everything to go and get him. We showed it when we went and paid him on that contract and it's not like we're trying to get out of that contract. Like we're committed to that. But we're trying to build a football team that has incredible depth that we have this value of this backup quarterback position you know Jeffrey said like we want to have two of the top 10 quarterbacks in the league like that's our goal that's what we're trying to do so do we see Jalen Hurts on the field clear this up for me because there's this idea that he's going to be like a Taysom hill we'll see him in different capacities two quarterbacks on the field at the same time even as he's serving as an understudy to Carson Wentz will we see that you know, that's a, that's a better co- question for Coach Peterson. You know, I, I'm not trying to duck it, but I'm also, you know, don't feel like that's that's my dojo. Do you envision that in your own mind? Do you think, I'd like to see this guy out there and see what he can do in a different capacity than quarterback, regardless of what the coach is going to do?
2: I love Carson Wentz, man. I, I love
1: Carson Wentz, and, and I love going to, head, to bed, and I put my head in, on the pillow and knowing that we have a strong quarterback room. That That, to me, makes me sleep better. See, I'm having a hard time understanding what Roseman's message was there. I kept trying to get him to talk about Jalen Hurts being used in that gadget capacity as Taysom Hill. And when he talks about how much he loves Carson Wentz and he wants to protect and support Carson Wentz, I I, I can't help but wonder, Peter, whether or not he's going to want to keep Jalen Hurts in bubble wrap because Jalen Hurts is there primarily to be that insurance policy against the next inevitable Carson Wentz
2: injury. Anything that Howie Roseman says right now about using Jalen Hurts is viewed as a subtraction of Carson Wentz. It's not viewed as a, hey, this is going to make us all better. So that's why my gut feeling, that's why Howie answered the question that way, because he just simply does not want to get into this, and he doesn't want there to be a headline of Roseman sees great benefits to Jalen Hurts. You know, he just... He doesn't want... I mean, If I'm reading the tea leaves, that's what I think. But Mike, the Philadelphia Eagles are an absolutely separate quarterback situation. They have a distinct, different quarterback situation than most in the NFL. And you say, well, what does that mean? <clears throat> what I say is that Carson Wentz, in the playoff runs of 2017 and 2018, missed 13 games with injuries Eight in the regular season, five in the postseason. And when your quarterback does that, you have to make sure that you have a backup quarterback that you can put in instead of saying, all is lost. When the Detroit Lions lost Matthew Stafford, all was lost. You know, when the Jets didn't have Sam Darnold, it's not anywhere near that situation. All was lost. So they, the Philadelphia Eagles, in my opinion, are different from 25 of the teams in football in that In my opinion, on the Philadelphia Eagles, two of the 10 most important players are the quarterback and the backup quarterback. So in other words, you have to devote resources beyond the Nate Sudfeld, Kyle Lawletta level as your backup quarterback with the Philadelphia Eagles, because the odds say that there's a decent chance you're going to have to play him and you might have to play him in some pretty important snaps.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's a, a lot of good to what Peter's saying there. I, I do think that's the truth. I mean, Mike, we talk about this all the time. Teams that we look at as a Super Bowl or playoff contender and why they, why they risk, you know, the, the, the ability of their team to win football games when their starting quarterback goes out and then we go, like Peter's saying, well, well, the season's over. Man, our starter's gone. Why do that? When you have a team that you know can make a deep playoff run and maybe get to a Super Bowl – why make it all about one player, and if he gets hurt, we're all screwed? So I do think there is that thought process, and how can there not be? Howie Roseman, Doug Peterson, so smart. They know how to run the organization there. And, of course, Carson Wentz, injury history. But I don't think it's about competition or anything about replacing Carson Wentz here. This is different than Green Bay and Aaron Rodgers. You know, Jalen Hurts does have a, a specific you know athletic skill set to where he's going to be able to add to this offense. You know, again, this is a coaching staff that's came from Andy Reid, West Coast offense, similar terminology to a Sean Payton who runs the West Coast offense. They see what Taysom Hill has done for them. And Hurts is a great leader, so you almost get two positions in one. But I do think that Philadelphia is not doing this to threaten Carson Wentz in any way. You know, when Harvey Rosen says he's their guy, I believe him. I mean, they, they traded away a lot of picks and stuff to get there, to pick Carson Wentz as the number two pick in the draft. They got rid of Nick Foles, who was a Super Bowl-winning quarterback because they believed in Carson Wentz, and they paid him like they believed in Carson Wentz. So I think it's more about Jalen Hurts helping out the offense, and then that insurance policy is the second part of the whole picture.
1: And Chris, you mentioned from time to time that John Gruden, the Raiders coach, views his offense like a Ferrari, and he trusts the quarterback with the keys. In Philadelphia, The quarterback is the Ferrari. And when you know that that Ferrari is going to get crashed from time to time, your insurance policy becomes more expensive and you have to devote the resources to the premium. And the premium here is Jalen Hurts in round two, because you know, based on history, that you're going to need a backup quarterback who isn't just standing there on the sideline, but is ready at a moment's notice to enter the game. Case in point, when... Carson Wentz got hit illegally by Jadevian Clowney in the wildcard game. It was over for the Eagles. Over. Season done. All the work they put in to get there gone in an instant. But, but all that said, all that said, I don't know why they won't embrace this notion of, of Hertz doing other things while he's waiting to replace Carson Wentz. Because that will at least make the fan base feel better about why this was done. Because the fan base. They, they they don't I don't know why they don't want to process it but they don't they want help for Carson Wentz they want a shiny new object that's going to be on the field why not tell them hey we are going to use Hurts. we get we get the, the the best of both worlds here we get a guy who's going to be on the field from time to time in a Taysom Hill package and we have a guy who's going to back up Carson Wentz when he gets hurt again I don't understand why they won't just just say that that I I didn't I didn't think that was all that controversial of a take for for Howie Roseman to embrace all right we got to take a break. We talked earlier briefly about the San Francisco 49ers, what they did to the Green Bay Packers in the NFC Championship game. They also did a number on their division, winning it and securing the number one seed. What has the rest of the NFC West done to catch up to the defending NFC West champions? We'll talk about that next here on PFT Live. San Francisco 49ers nailed down the NFC West Championship at the tail end of the Week 17 game against the Seattle Seahawks, barely holding off Seattle, but nevertheless taking the division and ultimately heading to the Super Bowl. Best division in football right now with Seattle, the Rams, and the Arizona Cardinals chasing the 49ers. What have those teams done to narrow the gap, which really is kind of narrow anyway when you consider how hard it was for the 49ers to fend off? the Seattle Seahawks. And let's start with what the 49ers did, guys. What, I mean, I, I, you know, DeForest Buckner being traded to the Colts was kind of a surprise, one of the key players on the defensive line. But uh, they have done what they had to do to replace him in round one with Javon Kinlaw, and then the receiver they added, trading up to get Brandon Ayuk. Uh, as Chris said last week, this is this is the guy that Kyle Shanahan wanted. This is the guy he viewed as the top receiver to fit that offense. Peter, I, I think that for a team that – you know, has nowhere to go. But down, they have done a pretty good
2: job of of treading water right where they are. I thought John Lynch had the best week of anybody, any general manager, any franchise architect. Imagine that all along you're thinking, I have two jobs in this draft. I've got to replace DeForest Buckner, and I've got to get a franchise receiver. And then on Tuesday, imagine Kyle Shanahan calls Joe Staley and says, hey, just want to get an update on what you're thinking. And Staley then telling him and John Lynch, I'm going to retire. So now you don't have two big things to do in the draft. You have three. And by the way, oh, just go find a left tackle, by the way. So what does he do? He not only gets the, the defensive tackle Kinlaw and the wide receiver Ayuk in the draft, but he trades a five and next year's three. So the value essentially is... For a four and a five, you get for at least one year a guy who's going to be almost as good as any left tackle in football. Who knows what happens after one year? But John Lynch solved all three problems on one weekend. I just thought the 49ers had a tremendous uh, draft weekend.
0: Yeah, they definitely did. I mean, they killed it. Uh, They would be one of the teams I would look at, yes, where it wasn't a ton of draft picks that jump out to you like some other teams. But it's the quality of the draft picks to what Peter's saying. You know, I still wonder in this whole thing, like, would Chris Ballard have traded away the 13th pick for DeForest Buckner if he knew Javon Kinlaw was going to fall to him at 13? I would love to know the answer to that because I have the greatest respect of of Chris Ballard and how he uh, builds a football team. But, you know, you guys hit on all of it. You know, I just think, again, it just shows – the leadership of Kyle Shanahan, you know, and John Lynch, John Lynch, the GM, but let's not forget Shanahan's the one like Bill Belichick who has last rights. And he's the one that makes these calls. It shows how good they are at running an organization to me specifically with the Trent Williams situation to be able to keep it quiet with Joe Staley, not have anybody know, not hurt their trade leverage and getting this awesome Hall of Fame left tackle from the Washington Redskins where we know it was a delicate situation cuz Dan Snyder's not a big fan of the Shanahan family and I think the feeling is probably mutual uh to get that done I just think shows that the 49ers are one of those teams that we talked about yesterday Mike they're in the 10 where you better watch out they're doing things and have a clue and organizational goal every year and they're they're special that way
2: Go ahead Peter Mike can I add one thing to what Chris said and that is that so everybody after the draft, when I wrote my piece from inside the virtual war room of the Bucks, the biggest comment I had is, boy, why did Jason Light had to have to give up his fourth round pick to move one spot when he knew that he was still going to get Tristan Wirth? Just sit there at 14 instead of trading up with the Niners. And you know, that would make a lot of sense in all years except one. And that's this year, because Light told me after the draft, we had some intel that Joe Staley might be retiring, either that or whether he was going to retire, that he was very, very close to the end. And they also knew, this is not something I wrote, but they knew, John Lynch confirmed it to me yesterday, they really liked Tristan Wirfs. Not that they were going to take Tristan Wirfs at 13. Uh, They were going to take Javon uh, Kinlaw but and but they knew the bucks knew that there was interest in San Francisco uh interest in werfs and that's why in essence they ended up having to make the trade okay so we've
1: established the 49ers had a great weekend to already add to a great team the Seahawks all in all free agency and the draft have they done enough to catch and maybe surpass the 49ers. They added linebacker Jordan Brooks in round one. They've gotten rid of a couple of offensive linemen. They've added offensive linemen. Do we see enough of an elevation of the Seahawks organization, Chris, to give them a chance to, to stay as close as they already were to the
0: 49ers? Uh, I, I do think so. I mean, I think they made the appropriate moves in free agency to, to go along with that. You know, let's not forget You know, Mike Iupati there to help the offensive line. Greg Olson, you know, Cedric Obwehi, Philip Dorsett, trading for Quentin Dunbar from the Washington Redskins, who's a really good scheme fit for them. Bruce Irvin's back to come off the edge. And then, Mike, you mentioned it, the draft picks. Hey, Jordan Brooks is a Bobby Wagner-type talent. That's what he is, and he'll be the replacement for Bobby Wagner at some point. But then getting a – yes – A second round edge guy in Darrell Taylor from Tennessee, who's going to be a really fine player. So, yeah, I do think Seattle has, you know, closed the gap a little bit. Certainly Seattle was a team that even through this winning process was still kind of rebuilding their team from that Super Bowl era uh, team that we saw. So, again, I I think John Schneider and Pete Carroll have, have certainly closed the gap a little while the 49ers have done a great job, too.
2: Peter, your thoughts on the Seahawks? Yeah, oh, sorry, Mike. My my biggest thought is that, you know, I don't agree with Chris altogether. I think that the 49ers really set themselves up as the premier team in this division. Not that the Seahawks didn't do anything, but in my opinion, they have tried forever to fix the offensive line. Maybe they will, but that's just going to be just going to be something I think we're all going to have to see first. And I don't think the Seahawks are done. I think sometime in the next week or so, they wait out Jadavian Clowney and Everson Griffin. They sign one of those guys because this is still a team that absolutely still needs another piece in that pass rush. They can't count on Bruce Irvin to to be better than he ever has. And the only way that their pass rush today is great is if Bruce Irvin is a 15-sack guy. I don't see that in that defense right now. I think they end up by the time the games are being played, they end up with either Clowney or Griffin, and then they're going to have a representative, tough, good uh, pass rush. And I, I, you know, and I'm not forgetting all the other guys that they have in their locker room. You know, obviously they made a lot of noise last year getting rid of of, of Frank Clark and everything, and they replaced him with sort of a more of a budget conscious look. And just my thought is that I think San Francisco, they're very close anyway, uh, but I think San Francisco and what the 49ers have done is they've distanced themselves from the rest of the division. Between the Rams and the
1: Cardinals, guys, and I'll start with Chris on this, which of the two teams is closest to breaking out of the bottom of the division and challenging the top of the division if we accept that it's the 49ers and the Seahawks in those top two spots
0: wow it's really close I mean Arizona has made some big time moves as we all know through the draft and free agency they did I mean you know some of the free agent signings Jordan Phillips defensive tackle from Buffalo Devondre Campbell you know getting him at linebacker along with Isaiah Simmons in this draft so now the second level of their defense is going to be much improved you know Hopkins to that offense DeAndre Hopkins is going to be huge but I'm not going to lie guys I really like what the Rams have done this offseason. I mean, first off, I think the Rams kind of secretly killed the draft. They got their Todd Gurley replacement in Cam Akers. Got another really awesome receiver in Van Jefferson. Terrell Lewis, I don't think the Alabama edge rusher. He was one of my top five edge rushers, Mike. I mean, he has a chance to be a superstar. You know, my, my comparison was like Jonathan Abram, who ended up with John Abram. Remember him? He ended up with like uh, Abraham, 20, 130-something sacks career-wise. You know, they took a shot on him in the third round because he was injured a little in college. You know, and then you talk about Leonard Floyd and getting back Michael Brockers and A'shaun Robinson. You know, I think the Rams quietly made some big time moves. Yeah, they lost some names and some star power and Gurley uh, and Clay Matthews. But those are guys that were, they're, you know, they're not the same guys that we used to know them as. And uh, I, I quietly think Sean McVay and Les Snead have done a really good job this offseason.
2: Mike, I'm going to be very surprised if the Arizona Cardinals are not a 500 team or better. Very surprised. And I don't think any team in the NFL in this offseason so far has added of the magnitude of somebody on offense and somebody on defense as DeAndre Hopkins, a top three receiver in the NFL, and Isaiah Simmons, who can play five positions. And in my opinion... Sort of rekindles what the old Todd Bowles Cardinals used to do, which is to take a guy and make him from being a strong safety and put him down in the box sometimes, move him all over the formation. You saw it with Tyron Matthew, you saw it with Deion Buchanan, you know, and you look at what the Cardinals have done. And I think that in helping Kyler Murray the way they have, and they still have a very effective Larry Fitzgerald. You know, Christian Kirk, in my opinion, I think they're going to be a dangerous offense, and I think they're going to be a much improved defense. And as I say, it's going to be tough to win eight games this year in that division. I think yeah, you're that's going to see right. the Cardinals do it. Something that, that Chris and I have kicked around
1: in the past, Peter, and this is tied to the scheduling formula. This year, the NFC West teams play all four teams from the AFC East all four teams from the NFC East with an extra wild card spot available. Do not be flabbergasted if all four teams from the NFC West are in playoff contention late. And there's a way the dominoes fall where all four of those teams get into the postseason in the first year of seven spots per conference. All right, we got to take a break. Jameis Winston has officially found his new home and he didn't have to travel very far to get there. We'll discuss that next here on PFT Live.
2: I think uh, Commissioner Goodell had a vision of what he wanted to have happen and, and to continue to put this draft on so people could kind of enjoy a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, some live t- television and the draft has gotten to be such a big thing. And so I think that, uh, you know, he held to his guns he had a lot of people shooting arrows at him and but he held to his gun and he's had the foresight to see that this was going to be something that, the, you know, football fans needed out there wanted to watch and but also that we could also come together and put it to, and make it work and so our it people were the heroes there but uh i really commend commissioner goodell for you know sticking to his guns because it came off great one thing.
0: i want everybody to look at me i'm gonna pass at the coin after i say one thing That's a W. That's E one. That's E one. That's a W. How many people want to eat a W tonight? How many eat
2: a W
1: tonight? That was one of those weird moments you always remember when you start looking at a guy very differently. (laughs) What is wrong with you, Jameis Winston? Well, it happened in New Orleans, and now it stays in New Orleans because Jameis Winston joining the Saints on a one-year deal. This was the destination that I thought made the most sense for Winston all along. Look at what it did for Teddy Bridgewater once he got a chance to play. Not playing for the Saints won't get Jameis Winston paid, Peter. Playing for the Saints can. Chris and I talked about this yesterday. Fascinated to see Winston have the opportunity to start and finish a game for Sean Payton and how Sean Payton will design plays, design a game plan, and coach up Jameis Winston to get him to not make those dumb mistakes we periodically see and maybe make him into a guy who's closer to 5,100 passing yards, not 30 interceptions. Peter, do
2: you think it will work? By the way, I will say one thing first, Mike. Uh, That evening that the Saints and Bucks played, Tampa Bay lost by 20 points. So I think he had to eat an L that night instead of a W. Um <laughs> You know, I think my biggest my biggest point on on the whole Jameis Winston thing is this is this is a redshirt year for Jameis Winston. We are gonna have absolutely no idea unless Drew Brees gets heard and and Sean Payton chooses Jameis Winston to play over Taysom Hill. Maybe he will. But the only way we're going to have any idea of whether this helps Jameis Winston or not is if uh, Drew Brees gets hurt, which, looking at his history, is very unlikely. I mean, except for a broken bone in his hand last year, he's been the absolute iron man of the quarterback position. So I'd say that, number one. And number two, I I mean, this is about mental... Uh, Uh, improvement in the sport of football. I don't think this is about physical improvement. This is about learning the game a little bit more and getting it driven home to you time and time again. You look at Drew Brees' interception totals. He doesn't have, he doesn't throw them. He throws very few of them. So in my opinion, that is what the important thing is for Jameis Winston. And I will be very surprised if we see much on the field that's going to make anybody in the NFL say next year, well, Jameis Winston, he's gone out, he's fixed his turnover bug, you know, and and then go out and sign him to a big deal. I don't I don't see it happening.
0: Well, either way, okay, I just look at it like this a little bit, and I think, Peter, everything you said is real. I don't know if I expect to see him either. Uh, but I will say, you know, you talked about the mental aspect and knowledge of the game. He's going to learn something sitting there this year. And Sean Payton and Drew Brees, the reason they're so successful is, you know, Mike, this is something we've talked about a lot. You know, everybody has the same plays in football, but there's little nuances on how to coach them, when to call them, what defenses we like to call certain plays against. And that's where Sean Payton, you know, sets himself apart from the majority of the NFL. You know, Jameis Winston's going to run plays that he ran his whole life. But he's going to get to New Orleans and go, damn, they teach it like that? That's what they're looking at? They're reading this? Whoa, I ne- nobody ever told me that before. Man, that's a lot easier. I think he'll have a lot of moments like that. And if he shows good, good work ethic and you know, the ability to adjust to Sean Payton's game plan, hey, maybe he just comes back again next year and is the backup for Taysom Hill. If they want to play Taysom Hill, listen, it's still going to be a good place to be because Taysom Hill, we know they want to run the football and he's going to be physical and there's a chance he could get hurt still when he takes over the reins. And then Jameis Winston gets in there. So you're right, Mike. I mean, uh, Peter, I don't know if it leads to a a big time contract next year, but I think it's the right thing for his career nonetheless.
1: All right, yesterday we looked at the opening odds for Offensive Rookie of the Year. When we return, a peek at the opening odds for Defensive Rookie of the Year. We'll do that next right here on PFT Live. <music> Defensive Rookie of the Year odds posted by DraftKings and to a little surprise, Chase Young, the Washington edge rusher, plus 200. It means you bet 100, you win 200 if he is the defensive rookie of the year. But the one name that stands out to me, guys, one of my favorite players in this draft, the Jaguars' second first-round pick, edge rusher Von Chason. When you consider the help he has around him, especially if they keep Yannick Ngakwe for one more season, which they very well may do, I'm intrigued by what he can do. And at plus 2,000, you drop 100, you make 2,000 bucks. That's not a bad bet. A bad proposition for Chase on, who I think is extremely talented. Peter, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I would. I think Chase on with uh, you know, obviously with Josh Allen on the other side could really be a big, big threat. And I like that pick. The guy who I would pick right now is I'd pick Zach Bond. Uh, The reason I'd pick Zach Bond, he's uh, drafted in the what, the third round by the Saints. Uh, This was a guy who everybody in the draft absolutely loved uh you know a lot of people look at him as the next Teddy Bruski he is a plug and play uh pass rusher and very instinctive player a guy gets 32 tackles for loss and sacks combined in the Big 10 that is a great football player he'll have a chance to do that early and often i think the presence of Cam Jordan Uh, in front of him is going to be huge. I think Zach Bond comes in and makes a giant impact as a rookie.
0: Mike, you look at the two linebackers not named Isaiah Simmons. You know, the support system, I'm big into that. When you take a Patrick Queen or Kenneth Murray, linebackers on already really good defenses, they got a chance. But I think the one that jumps out to me with your logic, Mike, is Javon Kinlaw. I mean, how many, he's not going to get double teamed in San Francisco. He's going to have a whole lot of one-on-ones with that defensive line. And yep. that could lead to a lot of big stats.
1: Still got a full hour of PFT live to go. We'll be back with that right after this.
0: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So no, that's a good thing. Uh,